Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Been a busy week, hasn't it? Lots of lots of news. Lots going on. Yeah. Lots going on, and some of that you covered in your uh, your Alpha report this week. Three separate companies covered in your uh, your magazine write up. That, that bank holiday related. That bank holiday related. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's yeah affected all of us, including our magazine production schedule. Um, but yeah, uh, and I mean the big uh, the cover feature this week is the second part of our AIM one hundred series. So too many companies there to talk about individually on this podcast. But there is one company uh, in the AIM one hundred that perhaps we should start with. Uh, before we move on to companies like Reckitt and Domino's, who, yeah. who are in the news this week, which is Purple Bricks, which we've uh, we've written about in the news section, and you've also um, put your two pennies worth in in there as well. Not a good week for Purple Bricks, but not a surprise either. No, definitely not a surprise. I think what's been announced this week is not going to surprise a lot of people. Um, this is this is a classic case of a company trying to run before before it can walk. You look at you look at purple bricks, and actually, you think this is actually quite a nice idea. And I, I think, I think the company deserves a lot of credit because it has reinforced and strengthened the view that the traditional estate agent model of selling houses to to to, sell, to consumers is it's too expensive because it's commission based because it's percentage of value commission based. Yeah. Um, so there's, it's it's been ripe. That traditional estate agency pricing model, charging model, has been ripe for attack um, for a long time. So it goes back to, to to a lot of the things we've been saying about other types of companies that are in you know have had these you know been in market positions where they have had the ability to set their own price and ripe for disruption. Yep. Like for example, funerals, where we've obviously seen problems with dignity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so, but but that I, I guess the 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 kind of the basis of your your thesis of their problems is that that model also leaves itself somewhat open to to the problems it's now suffering, which is that if you're charging a flat fee and don't sell the property, the consumer is no better off. Yeah, and I think in a slowing housing market, that is not going to endear yourself to getting more customers to come and use you. Is is that what's actually happening though here? <sighs> Not yet, not yet. But I think you know the you know we were talking before we came on that housing market stats are actually not too bad uh, recently. But the market has gone has gone a lot softer, and I think that the traditional agents have woken up to the threat of internet estate agencies and purple bricks in particular. And there's lots of evidence that they are cutting their prices. You can haggle now and get quite close to the sort of thousand pound flat fee that um that purple bricks charges and the big problem the big problem is is this is that traditional agent if you don't sell you don't get paid purple bricks you get paid whether you you sell or not and i think there's a lot of potential for customers using purple bricks or any other company that adopts this internet selling flat fee business whether you you pay whether you sell or you don't to get a bit hacked off with it and you know if you if you think the market's soft and houses are staying on the market a lot longer and you can haggle a good deal with an with an estate agent then um 
that um, that's probably worthwhile doing. You know, if you don't sell, you don't pay. But this is not really the issue that's hurting purple bricks at the moment. I think I think eventually it will. Um, the UK business actually is is doing all right for them. It's they are they are making a small profit. The problem with purple bricks is that. It hasn't allowed time to make significant profits in the UK to get real confidence that this is a sustainable and meaningfully profitable business before taking it somewhere else. It's taken it to Australia um, and and America and also Canada where it's doing okay. But in America and Australia in particular, they are it's not working for them. They you, you know, you need a lot of money to market this business to people. To go, you know, you look at the adverts that you've seen in the UK. You're going into much bigger countries, much bigger markets, and therefore the cost of actually building up a business from scratch is is huge. And it takes a long time before you can make a profit. And whilst you're trying to make a profit, you're burning through shed loads of cash. Well, I guess, why have they done that though? I guess maybe maybe. I mean, I'm guessing here. Maybe their concern was that if they don't, if they don't make that move themselves, someone will just replicate their model in those markets and, and beat them to it. That's possible, but I think you know. I go back to my previous point: is that you don't know if it works. You don't know if this this model flies through different states of the world. You know that you can make a small amount of profit uh, in markets like the UK. Um, but you're going into completely different markets and you don't really know whether you can take what you've been doing in the UK and make it work somewhere else. And this is this is what they're finding. And you know, they're closing down their Australian business. They're scaling back the American business, which I think will probably lead to them getting out of it anyway because – you know, if you're going to scale back, you're just not going to build that brand awareness. I mean, this is something I always worry about with companies trying to to conquer the US. This isn't one; it's not one country in some respects. It's it's fifty different states, which are all very different markets in in a very large sort of federal federal entity. Yeah, it's not one country. Yeah, but yeah, it isn't. But you know, I see the logic of going trying to make this work in America. Because if we think our state agency fees are high here, they are absolutely horrendous over there. Yeah, I've, yeah. Um, I've always wondered why estate agents were so rich in well, yeah. actually here, but in in America, I mean, millionaires. But you know this. You know, you look at this company now, and the, you know that it's making big losses in America, big losses in Australia. It's got just over sixty million quid's worth of cash left. You know, you do start asking questions whether they can. You know, the cost of closing this down or absorbing continued losses in America that, you know, they're going to run out. You know, are they going to run out of cash? It's still quite a big company, isn't it? I mean, you know, three, 300 odd million. 375 million, I think, when I wrote this at the beginning of the week. Um, you know, they have tapped, I think from memory, they tapped shareholders for a bit of money a year or so ago. I think the cash the cash burn looks pretty significant here. And, and overall loss-making. Overall, significantly loss making because of what's been going on in Australia and uh, and America. Hey, is this a, is this one of those you know companies that that is a reflection of the idea that that actually you can bring companies to market based on an idea yeah. and then see what happens? Yeah, yeah. Which is which is kind of what we're seeing, you know, with with the kind of whole unicorn and phenomenon. You, and in you the... and I don't like this, do we? <laughs> right, you know, I, I just feel like I'm a cynic. No, no, I, I agree. You know, this this is a you know this is almost experimental. In in lot in lots of ways, and you know you look you look at you know you look back and you look at the prices. 
And I think I, I mentioned this in my uh, in my column last week in the magazine. You know, when I talked about valuations in general, and you you can see it with the likes of Uber and Lyft, how you know people are prepared to value a new idea or concept or disruptor, which is what which is what these companies are. And price this for success very quickly without any evidence whatsoever that the profits are going to come back. Yeah, indeed. So, the, so Uber, I, I don't think it's yet uh, hit the market, but the, but think, the plans are the plans are in motion. Yeah, and the valuation is in the sort of uh, talking, multiple tens of billions. I think we're talking eighty six billion. Eighty six billion. Uh, and as far as I understand it, within their prospectus or whatever they they issue out there, there is there is no path to profit. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're quite upfront about it and say, look, we don't know if we can ever make a profit here. I just don't know why you would buy that. I don't, well, I, you know, I, th- I think it's a sign of it's a sign of lots of things which aren't very good. You know, it's a sign of perhaps stock market excess, excess in general. Cheap money. Cheap money, greed. You know, people cashing out, taking the fees. Allowing, allowing the selling shareholders to just cash out at a very high price based on hope. And, um, you know, you can't feel sorry for individual investors. The, the risks are there. You know, you buy this, you you know, you buy this with your eyes wide open. If you get burned, you get burned. Mm. And, you know, not many people are going to feel sorry for you. You say you mean as a private investor or as an institution that, that's backing these things? Both, you know. You know, the facts are there in front of you. These companies aren't making any money. You you buy this and you're being sold it on the hope that it's going to be transformed. You know, it's going to be like an Amazon. You know, it's going to be like an Amazon or a Google, which truly does succeed and revolutionise the markets that they're in. They're story stocks. You know, if you look a bit more closely at things like the taxi market, taxi markets are horrible market indeed I, I often have a chat with a taxi driver on the way home from uh, from a, from a, you know an evening out with the with the team and it's a tricky business yeah it's you, a really tricky you know small local cab firms yeah. uber's not one of those they're not out in the, the sticks where i live but but these taxi firms struggle to get drivers they struggle to well, have the drivers enough, are on strike aren't they and or well, uber, uber, drivers. uber drivers but yeah. the local taxi drivers they just struggle to get enough of them there's competing firms they yeah. you know they're, they're, it's it's a, it's a tough tough it's business. a real bun fight and then, you know, you go back to the estate agency business. It's something I know a little bit about. Again, a, a bum fight, though, really. Yeah, it's, you know, you're, you know, you're scrapping for business. And when, when it turns down, it's, you know, you get several agents who, who, will, who will scrap because if, they, if they're not selling, they're not making any money. I, you know, my, my in-laws ran an estate agent for 30 years, and I can tell you that when, when they wanted to sell it, no one wanted to buy it. Mm. And, and the, the same actually happened. I, I know some people who were uh, small local travel agents in, in, in the years gone by, which was a, a kind of nice business for many people to be yeah. in that died. Yeah. Retire, I, can't sell the business. Yeah. You know, you can say, you can say, look, you know, we've not got the overheads with all these chains of high street offices and we've got an internet cost base. But the, the fundamental selling model is, the, is, well, it's not quite the same, but, you know, you need... You need transactions as, an, as a traditional state. And, and, and going back to Purple Bricks, Purple Bricks is trying to say, no, we don't need transactions. We just need listings. And I, and I, and I think eventually, uh, you know, we've seen companies like eMove, I think, close down. They did indeed, yeah. You know, they, yeah. Can't, they can't make it work. Probably they had a slightly different model. Yeah, 
but probably also because Purple Bricks got in in front of them. And it's not, you know, it, it's not easy. But the fundamental business of a state agency is a low valuation business. It's not something that you put a high multiple on. Let's talk about low valuation businesses. Moving on from a state agency, I think yeah. I think we've decided a state agency horrible business to be in. Purple Bricks may have a different approach. Nice idea. Nice idea. Yeah. Difficult market, but it's not working. I mean, let's look at someone more traditional, countrywide. Not great. Yeah. Foxtons. Not great. Yeah. Um. Another low margin business is automotive retailers. Yeah. Um, and uh, Virtu Motors had some results this week. Yeah. And I know you've, you've got some views on, on, on automotive retailers yeah. because that's another big volume, low margin type of game. Yeah. And really difficult. Difficult, but they're actually doing all right. Yeah, I do struggle to understand how they're managing that because, um, because you know, the car market has been dreadful. It, it is dreadful, and that's the headlines that you get in your newspapers every few weeks or every month when the Society for Motor Manufacturers and Traders gives their gives their monthly view of the car market and all the statistics. But car mar- car dealers have always made the bulk of their money from selling used cars and uh, from servicing after sales, spare parts, repairs. That is where the big source of their profits are coming from. And if you look at most of the motor motor retailers, this is what this is what's happening. They they're making the used market is holding up a lot better than the new market, and they're making a lot of money on servicing, which is one of the main reasons I would never take my car to a main dealer to have it serviced. Having looking at Virtu Motors yesterday and seeing them say that they make a seventy five percent gross profit margin on servicing, I think I know I've done the right thing. <laughs> Where do you go instead? I, I'd like to know. I'm not. No, far no, away no. From I, you, I, so. use, I use a, a local independent Volkswagen um, dealer, uh, not dealer servicing, and they charge a fraction of the price of the main dealer. They're all linked up. They do digital servicing. Everything that you can get, you can get done there. They get a better job. It's a better service, and um, you know I can see why. See why. You know, lots of people love the convenience of dutifully returning to the main dealer. And I think Virtu gave some um, some figures, actually, saying about 58% of new car buyers returned and, and bought servicing and servicing plans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. When I bought but the used But the used car, sorry, the used car was, was about 43%. Yeah, I don't know why you take a used car to a main dealer. I mean, I, I bought a new car many, many years ago, which I no longer have. Uh, I think we had it for about... 12 years. Yeah. So, you know, wasn't a bad purchase, really. Yeah. But for the first three, when it was under guarantee, go back to the dealer. The moment that stops, shop around. And that mindset still prevails. But also, a lot of cars on PCP, you have to get your car pretty much serviced through the main, main dealer. So the boom in PCP has actually been very good for uh, for the servicing departments of these franchised uh, car dealerships. Mm. And I think, you know, despite my views, you know, I I, I realise that on many things, as with this, I'm at odds of what lots of people do. Um, I think that's a decent stream of income that's going to hang around for quite a few years for these companies and will keep their profits reasonably good, I would say. Um, But then why bother selling cars? (laughs) <laughs> it's it's you know if- well this is a big debate you know will you know where one of the interesting things about you know you've got a couple of things going on here you've got the trend for lots of things being sold over the internet so why don't people buy cars over the internet and also you have 
and this is more of a long-term thing, um, electric vehicles, which require a lot less servicing. And uh, because there's no oil, no oil to change, mm. fewer moving parts. And that's that's going to become an issue one day for these kind of businesses. We've got we've got a big feature coming up actually in the next couple of weeks, uh, being written by uh, one of our our, uh, our star writers, Alex Alex Genois. Uh, it's called Carmageddon. Yeah, this market is. I mean, we talked about disruption in in uh, estate agency. The car market is going through an existential change. Yeah, I mean, I. I mean, we're not seeing any evidence of it yet. I mean, the car... Well, might... but that's big, partly because EV has been slow to come through, yeah. but, but it's there. It's no, looming ter- over the horizon. in terms of distribution, you know, in terms of selling, you know, the car manufacturers, certainly in this country, pretty much re- rely on, you know, franchise motor dealers to sell their stuff. You know, you know you, people say, you know, you've got the local Volkswagen dealership. It isn't Volkswagen that you're dealing with. You're, you know, dealing with John Smith's trading as... Essex Volkswagen. Yeah, and it's quite a fragmented market still. So, so I, as far as I understand it, a lot of these motor chains, uh, whether it be Virtu or, or you know, Pendragon or whoever it is, are, are kind of still in consolidation. Mate. And that's going to continue. And I think you're going to get even more. I think you're going to get brand consolidation as well. I mean, you know, one of the problems that the, the likes of the Virtu and so on are, are dealing with is that their cost base is going up. Um there are shortages of mechanics, which is pushing up wage costs. You've got business rates going up. Um, you've got things like tooling costs going up because cars become more um, more sophisticated, more complicated. And I think what you're going to see over the next few years is a consolidation of different brands on the same dealership site. Mm. You're beginning to see it already. You know, so instead of having you know just one brand at one location, they may sell two or three different brands. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because so. and they and that's not. I'm not sure how they win out of that, but it might stop them from losing in that it allows them to use their space and their property portfolio well, well, more efficiently. Well, drivers do have a you know something of a sort of brand loyalty when it comes to automotive brands themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you're you're a VW stroke Audi guy. Shh, shh. <laughs> I'm a Kia guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but no, there is there is some brand loyalty there, so that kind of does make sense. Uh, yeah, especially if you know people become a little bit, you know, because not all companies have equal EV ranges. You know, no. so people are starting to to be a bit more circumspect and in I, their buying. And I also think that you know, the cars are not the easiest things to sell over the internet. People want to test drive them. There's often financing involved and that kind of thing. Um, but it's always puzzled me why why, why we have this um, dealer network thing and, you know, why would you not try and just cut out the middleman and actually start selling direct to consumers like Nike does or Adidas does? It's, and, the, it's the old model. Yeah. It's just the way it's always been done. Yeah. And always right for disruption. So Honestly, you know, we're talking quite bearishly here long term, but I actually think short term, these companies are actually in not bad shape. And the, the shares are quite cheap. I mean, looking at that Virtu graph, they, I mean, they've come off quite substantially. Come off a lot. I mean, you know, there, a lot of bad news is, is priced into these companies. I mean, I think there's a, a rocky road ahead. We've got new new emissions coming in, in uh, this, this year, which led to a lot of delays of new models. But I think... Their bread and butter in terms of their profits, in terms of used and servicing, looks looks all right. I mean, let's, um, let's stick with the car theme. 
going back, sort of tying this back into what we talked about in terms of the unicorns, you know, Uber and Lyft, yeah. which also which has IPO'd and has been a bit of a damp squib. Yeah. Uh, isn't aren't they bets on the fact that people aren't going to buy cars in future? That that actually people will just you know, use use a, a car when they need it. You yeah. know, uh, and you, you know, hire it hire it from one of these firms or get a driver for a very short journey they need to do. Yeah, and it's why the likes of uh, of Google and Dyson are looking at you know autonomous vehicles as well, driverless cars. I yeah, should, I should have said rather than that, you know, flowery language. Autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. Let's stick with that. I, I did read something the other day from 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 an expert, although of course yeah. we don't listen to them very much anymore. That this the driverless car technology is a very very long way away. Yeah, I think so. You know, there are many interim steps before we get there. Um, but yeah, I but, think, but yeah, the whole model of car ownership could change as well. I think in if you look at you know what's happening in terms of urban congestion, it's not really fun driving anymore. You know, it's not. It's it, you know, it's owning owning a car is that it just burns a hole in your wallet. And I think that in in big cities, big towns. You can see, you can see a shift well, now, I, now. But whether anyone can make any money out of that is another matter. Indeed, I had a small argument with my wife recently, not not over the washing up, but over car. <laughs> she loves cars. Yeah. She loves driving. Yeah. And she said, "But people need cars to get around. People need, to, you know, uh, to get from A to B." But we live out in the sticks. You do kind of need a car. You do. And she refused to believe my point was that most people live in kind of conurbations now. And actually, there, 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 there is an appetite for some a, a different ownership model. So yeah, uh, I think and I looked at I look up stats, and I was right. And what, <laughs> which is always what, nice. What it means for investors, I'm not so sure because um, you know Lyft is no, nowhere near making a profit. It's lot. It's it's turnover actually doubled. It put it out its results, I think, yesterday. But then you know you can take but its that, losses went up. But then you can take that back to like the early days of Amazon and say no one was really sure. That, that this kind of model would be the future and it, and it and it kind of was but i do think amazon is a special company i, well, I think I, amazon i think now that amazon has got the cloud computing business it has changed changed the picture of that business it's like their float isn't it it's like their yeah, it uh, is, it's like it it's like their buffett float oh yeah it, it, it you know it is tra- it is literally transforming the financial performance of that business it gives them a lot of firepower yeah, I mean, talking to Buffett, um, you've, you've had a little, uh, a little, uh, little insight into to Buffett's latest dealings this week. You're not yeah. impressed. Um, well, well, I mean, he, so, so I mean, a bit of context. Uh, Warren Buffett has well, he's been in the news quite a lot recently. Uh, one, it was the Berkshire Hathaway sh- annual shareholders meeting, which is always a bit of a jamboree. There was a big interview in the Financial Times. Yeah, which uh, in fact one of our former editors uh, conducted, Oliver Ralph, um, and actually he he said something like, "Oh, I'm I'm looking at businesses in the UK," which I thought was kind of interesting. Which ones, Warren? Yeah, um, there's a big petroleum deal, which somehow or other is linked to Warren Buffett. Talk talk us, yeah. talk us through this. Yeah, so there's a, an American company called Occidental Petroleum that is trying to buy a company. I think it's called Anadarko. It Anadarko, and it's got into a bit of a bidding war with with Chevron. And Warren Buffett has come along and said, "Look, this is going to cost about thirty-eight billion. I'm, I'll, I can give you ten billion towards this, and in return, I want you to give me a very nice heads I win, tails you lose deal." Sounds like a classic Buffett deal. Yeah, this is a classic Buffett deal, um, which he did with General Electric, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs, and he gets. 
preference shares. So you get he gets paid before the shareholders do. And he's so ten billion pounds worth of preference shares with an eight percent interest rate, which is very nice. And then also has um, options or warrants over around eighty million Occidental shares at a price of about sixty two dollars fifty, which is a about I think when I wrote I don't know what the share price is now but when I was writing this on Tuesday it was fifty eight, so not much more than the current share price, and. If the share price goes down, Warren's not really bothered because he's still going to collect his 800 million of uh, preference dividend. But this really does, in my opinion, represent a horrendous deal for Occidental shareholders. And it's very difficult. And I mentioned it that this is a company with a market capitalization of about 44 billion. It has borrowings of about $7 billion. And it's churning out 3 billion of. Free, free cash flow. Why are they taking Buffett's cash then? I don't. I I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, I think you know there are people who are concerned that this is a risky deal. Um, but I, it's very difficult not to think that this is a company that could have raised money cheaper than this on the markets. If we look where interest rates are in America, um, you know, investment grade corporate bonds are yielding what about three and a half. Well, I mean, you know, you know, you, you look look at WeWork. Going back to the unicorn thing, they raised. Well, they, I think it was a five hundred million dollar bond that they were looking for. I think they got seven in the end. Yeah. It was like seven or eight percent. The problem with problem with the preference share, of course, is that it's not tax deductible. You know, because you're paying it out of after tax profits, whereas if you pay interest on borrowings, you get you you lower your pre tax profits and you lower your tax bill. So this is a very expensive way to raise money. And then the potential dilution to existing Occidental shareholders just makes it look even even more expensive. It's a great, you know, it's a it's an okay deal for Berkshire because you know because of the rate of return and there's not a lot of downside unless Occidental goes bust, which it probably won't. Um, but actually, what does this do for Berkshire? Not a lot. You know, you're looking at a company that made nearly $25 billion of operating profit last year, adding another $800 million of preference dividend stream isn't really going to move the dial at Berkshire that much. Uh, and it also, you know, this, this is, you know, there's a lot of Buffett fans lauding this, but this is not the kind of deal that you and I can do. Well, that's, but that's true of many of the deals Buffett has done in the past, including uh, Tesco, interestingly, yeah. which, which a lot of people, when Tesco was in, on its knees and he bought yeah. into it, everyone, ah, oh, Buffett's back in Tesco. He backed it in a way which yeah. massively protected him. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be fair, you know, just to sort of add some balance to this, I mean, this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why you would own stocks, the stock of Berkshire Hathaway, because you've got somebody like him who is very influential, the company has a lot of cash, and he can do these little niche deals. Mm. But it's not, you know, this is not going to move the dial of a half a trillion dollar market capitalisation company. I do wonder what he's going to buy in the UK, going back to uh, to Mr. Ralph's interview. Uh, well, I, suggest, we'll I, su- I suggested he had, might have a look at Reckitt's. Yeah, indeed. It's, that's the uh, that's the main uh, subject of your, your column this week. Reckitt Bank is uh, best known, I guess, for Sillit's Bang. Uh, well, amongst other things, you know. Sillit Bang. It's the Sillit Bang company. Nah, <laughs> uh, things like Neuraphen. Um 
uh, you know, death. I covered it long ago, long enough ago that that Silit Bang was the yeah. the main action. I was warned uh, off that. Told it absolutely di- disintegrates your taps. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> but- Rick- Bank here, so I guess falls into that that category of company that has come to be known as a bond proxy. Well, if you look at you know Buffett's got form here. You know, he's he's own businesses like like Gillette, um, Procter and Gamble. They own Duracell batteries now. I think he's wholly owned by Berkshire. Craft was something he had a big stake in. He was part of the of the of the the plan to buy Unilever. Yeah. So this this is a kind of business that you know market cap forty billion roughly. It's a big company. Big company, but he wants what he refers to as an elephant. Um, well, he needs an elephant. Yeah, Barge is so big. That's what they need. Yeah. Um, this is a company that has got a few issues. You know, it's there's a few sort of legal and regulatory issues going on in the background with things in South Korea. That's still going on. Yeah, and then stuff in with Indivior, of course. Which are uh, they? Are they still involved in that? There's there's a provision on the balance sheet for four hundred million to cover that. But That's what, pretty chunky. I, yeah, it I, might I, not I, be big enough. Some people think. Yeah, but the main problem this company's got is actually getting these portfolio of brands and churning out consistently good sales growth from them it's very very patchy and you know one of, one of the worries i would have about a business like this is that you know we talked a few weeks ago about about the sort of amazon and the the discounter effect of the aldis and lidls and this this is going on in not just groceries but you know in terms of consumer consumer brands as well and um, the growth of private label uh, in terms of the scale of it, but also the quality of it, is getting better and better. And this, I think, is a, an issue. It's not, it's not hitting home at Reckitt's yet, but it's a kind of thing where you look at, you know, you just, just put yourself in the, you know, you're in your week, doing your weekly shop, and you look at things that you'll put in your basket like, Dish, you know, finished dishwasher tablets, Dettol spray, um, Neurofen. These are the things that can be substituted by very effective, e- almost equally effective private label sub- substitute products for a fraction of the price. And, you know, we're living in a world now where I th- I think some consumer brands are are actually quite vulnerable, and I I think we're at the beginning potentially of a story where this 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 could develop over the next decade. I mean, I mean, something like a dishwasher tablet is not something that you know. It's not like a sort of purchase, a keeping up with the Jones type purchase. No. It's not something that you boast to the world about. You know, certain certain sort of food brands, personal care brands, they 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 define you in yeah, some I, way, and, and, yeah. and a dishwasher tablet. D- does not no nor does nor does an ibuprofen tablet <laughs> or you know or something that you spray your kitchen surfaces with yeah i i tend to agree although brands like Dettol, i mean they have a long legacy you know people are quite there is this sort of inertia that and loyalty that that, that exists without without a doubt no they exists. have they have the they have that security feeling for in that the brand that a long established brand gives mm. um but you know Reckitt's itself, you know, it has a um, has a cough, cold, and flu treatment mainly in America called Mucinex. Sounds lovely. Yeah, and they, you know, they are saying there look, that private label competition is is 
taking taking a bite out of it. I, I can believe that. I mean, I earlier this year had the, possibly the worst flu I've had in, in as long as I can remember. And yeah, I bought some Superdrug, and you know the price of the the Strepsils versus the the own label stuff for the same ingredients. Yeah, yeah. You know, despite being dead on my feet, I, I was still like, is how? What's the active ingredient? And and it's like this is half the price, and it's got this. It's, it's got more drugs in it. Yeah, this I mean, is great. But you see, these things can persist for a long time. You know, you see trends or situations. You know, you can see them, or maybe think you see them. That they can persist persist for years, and then something will happen. Probably a recession, when people have to become a bit more value focused, mm-hmm. and they'll think, "Hold on a minute, I'm not paying that for." those tablets i'm gonna stick some of these in instead they'll do just the same job there are bits of the business which i think are relatively defensive and the um you know the the baby food business which they paid a hell of a lot of money for that's the kind of business that is pretty quite defensive you know there are strict standards um the barriers to entry of in, of a of, uh, of entering that market are pretty high, and when people are dealing with their children, they want the confidence of of a very strong brand. And I think strategically, I can see why Reckitt's bought that, and I think it is quite defensive. My my concern about it is whether it can grow enough. Hmm. Um, you know, you're already seeing that in places like China, the decline in the birth rate is coming through. In America, it's doing a little bit better, but it's been very patchy. Um, but I think I think there's something something with this company that, um, that 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 makes me think that something could happen with it. Okay, so so, so basically, the share price. I've been looking at that chart. It had a good run from 2015, but it's been been very weak for the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, and it's on a cheap rating relative to its peers. It's relative to other what you might have once called bomb proxies, yeah. of which you might have considered this company yeah. a bomb proxy and it's at still, one point. still, you know, this is a business that's making, you know, mid-20s operating profit margin. Good so, good cash flow. So this is a special situation, potentially. Well, I, yeah, and the company is actually helping things along here. It's got a, got a project going where the, the health business and the hygiene business are actually pretty much being run as autonomous separate mm. businesses which makes them, one of them sometime in the future easy to easier to spin off and there's a lot of that stuff going on in this particular market we've seen deals between uh, Pfizer, Pfizer and Glaxo. Glaxo so there's lots there's lots of stuff going on I, I think you know I, this is I'm, I'm not you know I, I'm not saying that all is well with Reckitt but I think there's something in here in terms of the market that it's in the structure of the company the price of the shares that makes me think something could happen with this. It yeah. would not surprise me. Let's talk about another uh, company that apparently used to sell something that everybody wanted and couldn't get enough of, but but we're seeing some real trouble here. Domino's, we've covered it quite a lot on this podcast. Yeah. They've warned this week uh, that their overseas businesses are not doing quite what they expected them to do, but I think your concerns li- lie deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, the overseas businesses have you know, never really had the potential to make huge amounts of money in my in my opinion um they have been the cream on the cake shall we say or the extra cheese on the topping i i thought they were i always thought of those those international forays as we're we're trying to build something that that once the uk is mature will give us something else yeah there's that but if you actually look at the i mean apart from the sort of german 
joint venture that they've got. They're in places like Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, um, which aren't really massive markets. No. Um, and it's difficult to see how that would transform the company. My my concern over the last two years has been what's been going on in the UK. Um, and this is two, mainly around the franchisees. Yeah, probably. and the franchisees are getting hacked off here because obviously Domino's needs to grow the number needs to grow the number of pizzas. So so Domino's is reliant on its franchisees to open up more stores, sell more pizza. Domino's makes the bulk of its profits from selling pizza ingredients to its franchisees, not from the royalties percentage of sales of total turnover that the franchisees make from selling pizzas. And there's been bubbling amount of discontent on things like, I know it sounds very sort of specialist, but like the cheese price. So the, some some uh, franchisees and big franchisees, and the power of the franchisees shouldn't be underestimated. There are some a very small amount of franchisees that are responsible for a large chunk of the actual business. And I think there's there's been a view that Domino's is very quick to pass on ingredient cost inflation but not good to give not quick to give it back but there's a more serious issue going on in my opinion and this is the strategy of opening more stores by what they call splitting territories so for example if you live in a town where there perhaps was two domino's pizzas there's now three yeah and the risk with this, and we've seen this in the restaurant business with something like Restaurant Group, is that once you start over-expanding, that new third restaurant starts taking sales from the first two. No, I guess I guess we've kind of known that this was a risk for a while. Yeah. And this and and it's been a, a kind of key sort of bare thesis of yours. We're now seeing signs that that yeah. is having an impact. And the thing is that the company is being pr- quite evasive, in my view, about actually the extent of what people call cannibalization of sales is going on because it is going on and they they present their like for likes excluding the terror the, the the effect of splitting rather than actually giving so we don't know the effect of the splits does that mean we don't really know their like for likes we, you can work them out when you get to the half year reports when they give a bridge right like a sales bridge you can see that they do give it but in like in a quarterly report like they're given this week they don't give it you have to wait for the half year and the full year result and you can see that it that it is taking sales it is cannibalizing sales and it also is affecting the profitability of the new store and the existing store there was something in a presentation a year or so ago which shows that the initial splits have, have survived, but the later split territories are finding it harder. Mm. Now, if you're a franchisee and Mr. Domino's is asking you to open more stores, you start thinking, I don't like this. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to open more stores unless I can get a good return on my investment. And it's £300,000 to open it, to, to, is the capital required you need to sink into a new Domino's franchise. And whilst... You know, Domino's has put the figures out in terms of EBITDA that the returns on the franchisees' sort of established stores are still pretty good, actually. In terms of the new ones, particularly if you're in a split territory, it's by no means certain that the returns going forward are going to be as good. So what we've got now is a standoff. 
We've got standoffs, and the franchisees are saying, "I'm not. I don't want to open stores." Now, last year we had nearly sixty new stores opened. This year, so far, we've had four. There's another three about to go open up, and then if you actually look at the plans, the total openings are actually with firm sort of shovels in the ground, shall we say, is about 15. It's quite low for a, 15, for a group as big as this. 15 when, on a base of sort of 11, 1,200. Yes, it's, it's tiny. Now, this is, a big, this is a big source of forecast risk in that if, you, if people are basing their forecasts on 60 a year opening up in the UK and we're only doing 15 and that this splitting of territories is changing the economics of new stores this is a big problem yeah yeah indeed and that is the final final word on dominoes we've actually got them on sale at the magazine have done for for quite some time and uh, you don't sound too too bullish here either i think it's actually on a standalone basis has been a very very good business yeah all good things come to an end and i think and i think and i think you know I'll, i'll put my hands up and say you know perhaps Two years ago, I never saw this as an issue. But but you can only look at what you, what you can see, and what you see is you know you, you know you, there's grounds to worry here. Indeed, indeed. There's plenty more in the magazine this week. Uh, let me just talk you through some of the highlights. John Barron has uh, has updated his investment trust portfolios, uh, looking at the the uh, idea of selling in May and concluding that uh, it's best to stay invested. Alex Newman is looking at the uh, the bank's first quarter updates, seeing the, the trends there, looking like actually the Asian-focused banks are doing much better than the UK-focused banks. Algie's Peter Lynch-inspired growth stock screen uh, is updated this week. He, he's commenting there really on a, a sort of worrying inconsistency, uh, which is at odds with the, the Peter Lynch uh, approach of uh, actually finding consistency. A few results this week. It hasn't got busy yet, thank goodness. Uh, and plenty more in the news section that we haven't covered, uh, including some numbers from ITV, which are slightly worrying, and an update on uh, Vodafone, and in particular their deal in Germany. Thank you all for listening. Uh, pick up the magazine in all good news agents, the AIM 100, part two. Continuing our countdown of the biggest companies on the junior market, it's uh, uh, numbers 50 to one. Uh, pick it up in all good news agents, £4.90, and we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much.